Hey, Acts chapter 18, if you've got your Bible. Acts 18, we are kind of three quarter, two-thirds of the way through uh, our study of the narrative of the early church. And so here we are in chapter 18. No worries if you don't have one. We'll put the text up on the screen for you. Um, we're dealing with the first 17 verses of this chapter. You know, one of the many things that's beautiful about the church um, is the variety that God brings and God saves that puts in a context like this. All types, all kinds, right? Some, some uh, of us are thinkers and some of us are feelers, and that's good, amen? Unless you're a feeler, then thinkers are in the, make, in the way. Um, s- some, of, some people are planners and some are doers and some are energetic and some are way more chill than that. Either way, there's a lot of variety in the church just the way God intended, but there is something about the church that we all have in common. Every believer I've ever met, every believer in this room will deal with this issue, and that is that we all get discouraged. Everyone deals with, man, this is, this is more than I can bear. Sometimes, our st- you might never say this, but it might kind of, the truth ring in your head. Sometimes it's just too heavy. You could be talking about it, meaning life. You could be talking about our world. You could be talking about you or all of the above. Sometimes that's just kind of how we conclude it. Let me be transparent with you a little bit. Um, I want you to know something. I, I love Jesus with everything I've got, and, and I love doing what I get to do, and I love you people. I really do. But sometimes, no, don't take this personal, sometimes I'd rather do something else. I just would. I watched a documentary last night called Unbranded. Made me feel like this. If you haven't, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it. Um, It's a story about four college graduate boys who break wild Mustangs and then take the Mustangs from Mexico to Canada, like 20, 30 miles a day. So it takes a while. And I thought, I wouldn't want to do that. I could do that. Just get me in the middle of nowhere where nobody is and that's, that would be kind of what I desire. Now, I know that's not reality, but I'm just saying. Sometimes it just gets a little bit too much. S- sometimes I'll, I'll just confess, I don't want to hear another bad story. I don't want to hear about another sin. I don't want to hear about somebody's pain because it just gets a little bit heavy. Sometimes I don't want to look in my own mirror because I'm the reason why it's too heavy. Like, I failed again. I did it again. And all of it just wishes I could just, you know, unplug. You ever feel that way? Can I get out of here? Somebody else wants to be on a horse in Canada. Anyway, um, I know you could relate. And by the way, the great part about chapter 18 is I think we can look at the Apostle Paul and see that he can relate. The Apostle Paul is, is dealing with a moment like this, and we get to see how God arrives and how he arrives in grace, just like he does for, for all of us. So that's what we want to do today. In chapter 18, just prior to this particular story, remember Paul has spent some time in the culture shock of Athens. Athens, this place that is so plural, it just doesn't have a focus. It is all over the place. Luke, who's telling us the story about what Paul encountered in that place in Athens, used a couple of statements to describe them, these Epicurean Stoic philosophers. In other words, these were people that believed that everything was just by chance, and you live your life and you die. Annihilation, no harm, no foul. So get the most out of life you can. Pleasure is the chief end of man. So just picture that driving your society. And then Stoics, who who were pantheists, 
in the largest part, believed that everything was a God. That's why when Paul's walking through Athens, he's going, there's an idol to that, and an idol to that God, and an idol to that God, and an idol to that God. There's an idol to a God they don't even know the name of. That's how many idols they have. And so the, the Stoics had that. that. Those two thoughts, go for it, have a blast. And there's a God who's indifferent to your story, and you can't ever find him. That shaped the pagan culture that Paul arrived in here in this point of Corinth, or, or in Athens, by the way. In, cha- in, in chapter 17, verse 32, the response to Paul sharing the good news that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and has offered forgiveness of sins was responded to this way. The text says some just outright mocked him. And some said, you know, come back later, maybe. We're kind of busy. We're living our life, doing our thing. We're not really that interested. And if you remember the personality of Paul, Paul was a passionate, driven guy. Before he met Jesus and after he met Jesus. And Athens had way too much apathy for him. These people don't care. I just gave them the hope of life and they're just going, eh, maybe, maybe not. And so he's, he's a little worn out by it. So Paul then, with that as the driving factor, moves from Athens to Corinth to this place we're going to read about today, probably feeling a little bit down about how they just responded to this message, probably feeling a little bit down about the whole journey in Europe because it's not been a lot of fun for the apostle. I'll go there, God. You've, you, you kind of hemmed me in. You pointed me to Macedonia. I'm there, but ever since I've been there, I've been in trouble. I was beaten in Philippi. I was rejected in Thessalonica and Berea, and I just got done with Athens, and they don't care. <laughs> I'm, I'm worn out, okay? Listen to how Paul describes it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the emotion, I believe, of the apostle experiencing ministry that God called him to. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. This is sort of a short paraphrase, but I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Sounds to me like a guy who's a little worn out. Like this isn't going the way I thought at all, so I'm a little bit, I'm a little apprehensive about this experience. So what I want to do today is I I, want to look at chapter 18 and see if we can find out what possibly could be getting to Paul. Like what's discouraging him? And then how does God respond to Paul's heart at, at this moment in time? Let's read the first 17 verses of chapter 18 to get the story and then we'll see what God has to say. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. 
But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's, let's pray and ask God to hope, open our hearts and our minds to this truth. Lord God, I do ask for the Holy Spirit's presence now in this time. Uh, guide my words and my heart. Guide our ears to hear what you have for us today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, Paul leaves Athens, and by the time he sets up in Corinth for ministry, um, I believe he's already starting to feel the pressure. I think, I think Paul has been feeling the pressure ever since he put foot in Europe. I, I think the way he was treated in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, I think, started to escalate or, or collect a series of feelings and emotions about doing things God's way, that he just said, well, this is really, this is really not at all what I expected, and it's a little bit difficult. Let me give you the reasons why I believe Paul is a little bit discouraged at this point in time, because because Corinth is just another one of the long list of tough places that Paul has been called to go. Just to give you some context, if Athens, as I described before, is the culture shock for Paul, everyone believes in everything and nothing really matters and we're all apathetic, Paul, remember this zealous Jewish mindset, couldn't perceive a person who didn't care about the things of God, so there's a, there's a culture shock, but now he's in Corinth, which is a total moral shock to this man. Writers would describe Corinth as a moral cesspool, the ultimate secular city. It is the center of cult worship to Epaphrodite, and the, one of the wonders of the world at that time was the temple to this goddess. And every night, thousands of temple prostitutes would work their trade in, in that town, okay? Homosexuality was rampant, as well as other sinful lifestyles, and it was out of control, and Paul was overwhelmed. You see his commentary about this, what he discovers in Romans chapter 1. Let me just read to you and see what you think. Paul's commentary, for the women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relationship with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, period. If you're Paul... You walk into this world and go, man, it's just too dark for me. And it might seem like you're just picking up your morning newspaper because it's just too dark for you. You can't watch the news because there's another story about something you can't even possibly fathom happened to someone. It's just too, too wicked and too gone. I can just imagine Paul going, really, God? Is there a place called Mayberry I can go to? I got to go to Corinth? They don't. 
Mayberry was an illustration for some of you from the 60s. I just saw people, Mayberry, what's Mayberry? Google it. Do you ever feel that way? Be honest. Do you ever wake up and go, I, I know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get some space. It's too dark. It's too hard. Does it feel like just one more, just one more story will make you want to get on a horse and go to Canada? Does it ever, maybe not that. <laughs> Your version of that. Well, Get this, Paul's discouraged because there's another place, a brutal place that God's called him to go. I think it's, he's also discouraged because there are tough times that Paul is going through. Let's back up for a little bit to get perspective on his life. If you remember chapter 16 when we went through it, I told you then that in the narrative of Luke writing the story about the early church, suddenly he arrives as the we in the story. That Luke, Dr. Luke, arrives in the missionary journey, the second trip. With Paul, and many writers would suggest that Paul was sick at the time. So maybe Paul's just going, man, I'm just worn. I'm, not only is it bad, I'm bad. I'm worn out. I'm sick. I don't feel good. God, and you've called me to this Mount Everest of tasks. I can't, I can't see my way through it. I think it's also true that the rhythm of Paul's life is what discouraged him. In other words, and this is going to sound really weird, success was a problem for him. So let me just tell you about Paul's version of ministry and life, and you'll get my point. So, so this is how it went for Paul. He would go where God called him to go. He would go into regions and places and areas that people didn't go, and he would tell them of the wonderful news that Jesus saves, and get this, God would move and people would get saved. You would think it'd be all good. The problem is those people would eventually beat him up and kick him out of the country. And I'll bet you Paul goes, wait a minute, God, are we going to have more success I don't, I don't need more success. Because every time you do something, they beat me up. And I don't enjoy this. This is too much for me to bear. I can't keep it up. I've been imprisoned. I've been stoned. I've been beaten, left for dead, brought before judges, and faced all sorts of false accusations. That's my life, God. And that's me obeying you. It's too much. Can you relate a little bit? Can I get an amen? amen. There you go. I think Paul's discouraged because the results that, that he hoped for weren't there. Back up to chapter 17, here he's in Athens, Athens dumping his bucket, as it were. He's telling them about Jesus, and the conclusion was some just mocked him outright. Some said maybe later, we don't know, we're, we're too busy. It says few believed. So here you have Paul. This called, impassioned apostle, preaching and reasoning and teaching in his mind, you know, there's not much to show from this. I'm really going for it here. I thought there'd be so much more response. And there wasn't. In fact, most writers would suggest the fact that Paul, Paul was so discouraged that he split from Athens and left his compadres at home. They never traveled apart. So Timothy and Silas were left to do the work in, in Philippi, why Paul just said, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm not waiting for the train to catch up. I'm just done. So he's, he's tired. He's worn out. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you dump your heart and soul into something and no one seems to care? <laughs> time to time. Or they do care and their only concern is to critique and criticize what you just poured your heart and soul into. That happens. 
And guess what? It happens in church too. It happens. It's discouraging. And when you're discouraged like that, we have a tendency in our own minds to make ridiculous assessments. And these, it kind of goes like this. They didn't like it. I have failed. It didn't go well. God's punishing me. And obviously the conclusion should be somebody else should do what God wants them to do because I'm not the man. Right? Words that we'd use to describe the emotions of that moment would be confused or embarrassed or defeat or angry or alone. And I think the Apostle Paul is feeling all of that at this point. Another reason why Paul is discouraged, I think, is, is because he, he is alone. The text paints it pretty clearly. When Paul was in Athens, in the culture shock of that environment, he was alone. Silas and Timothy were in Philippi finishing the work there, and he was preaching, but he was alone. And it was before, obviously, before he met Aquila and, and Priscilla. And, and so this statement, which is true for them, is true for all of us. And that is, when you're alone, you're sometimes your own worst company. Right? You have a tendency to, to see through a distorted lens. And by the way, discouragement and isolation is the times where Satan does some of his best work. Because when you're alone and isolated, when you feel defeated, he comes to whisper things that aren't true. He takes these problems, not to say there aren't problems, problems, and he does this with them. Suddenly they have this steroid version. They just get huge and they get... Insurmountable, they get unfixable, they get bigger than you. Sometimes our perspective to even see the promises of God and how they apply gets so cloudy and hope just kind of vanishes. All those things happen when we're alone and isolated, which, which is a point I'm going to make in a minute, a reminder that you and I were never created to go it alone, ever. Spiritually, spiritually we belong to each other. We build each other up. We pray for one another. We encourage one another all the more as the day approaches. That's what we do. If you're on your own and you call yourself a Christian, I guarantee I know what you got in your life. Discouragement. That's how it works. I think Paul was discouraged. I think. I think I can make the case for this, that there were some financial stresses on him. Does that sound familiar to anybody in the house today? I think it should. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul said this about his time in Corinth. When I was with you, I was in need, but I didn't burden anyone. I refrained from burdening you in any way whatsoever. Paul was in Corinth before help came from Macedonia, because we'll learn this too, that when Silas and, and, and Timothy show up, they show up with an offering from the church in Macedonia. But he was without that at this point. And so what did the apostle do? What did the great apostle Paul do before help arrived? Ready? He got a job making tents. Got busy. I don't know how you make a tent, but I'm assuming it involves sewing. And he's hanging out with Aquila and Priscilla, and they're making tents. Why? Why? Because he wanted to make tents. It was strategic for mission. No. He had a need. I don't want to be a burden. So I'm going to work. And Paul is, I've told you this before, as opposed to us thinking about Paul as the super saint, like he just sees things differently than you and I, don't. He's just like you and I. And when the financial need arose in his heart, I'll bet you he felt the stress of that, the discouragement of that. God, I'm doing your work. I'm trying to do it your way. Why is this so difficult? Why after me getting beaten and rejected do I have to go make tents? Why? Why do I have to do something so not 
seemingly kingdom. Why? So, I think, I think Paul is no different than you and I. He faced those financial struggles, and we'll see that God answers it in a minute, but um, he was discouraged. I think one last thing, and it's obvious from verses 6 and 7, that Paul was affected by the rejection. The text uses two phrases. They opposed him, they reviled him. That's, that's verse 6. The word opposed means to set an army against. I suppose if there's other, other words to describe opposition, uh, maybe a smaller one than an army against you. There was a mass negative response to Paul. They opposed him. The word ridicule means to hurt the reputation or speak evil against. I can just hear Paul say, God, here we go again. Like, here we go again. I just got done there, and they rejected it there. They beat me there, and now they're on opposition, reviling me here. And it's always my people, my Jewish people, who I'm telling about the Messiah, they always want to stick me in prison and reject me and accuse me of all the wrong things. Do you think Paul ever thought about quitting? Answer, yes. I think, I don't know how much. I don't even know if it was very often, but it was at least once in a while. And I think every one of us share that feeling, don't we? We do. You're a businessman. And you've decided God has a way for you to do business, honestly. Benefiting others for the sake of his gospel. And you've decided to work with an ethic that the world doesn't operate on. And you look around and there's other people getting business and they just fudge the numbers a little bit. They just fudge how they do it. And they succeed. And the temptation in your heart is to go, what would hurt to fudge a little bit? Because after all, that's how business is done. Sometimes that response can discourage us. You could be at the office and you could be out working everybody and the promotion just jumps right over you. And you'd be tempted to say, you know what? I'll coast too. Because hard work doesn't get you anywhere. That working all to the glory of God thing, that's, that's crazy. I'm going to coast. You, you could be one of those people, you're, you're trusting in God, and you look around and people who don't trust in God at all can't spell God if you spotted them a G and a D, and they're getting blessed. And you would be tempted to go, you know what, I'll just be bitter. Because God, I've sold out for you, and I'm trying, and there seems to be nothing fair in this world. You ever felt that way? Should have raised your hand right there. Um, then you know exactly how Paul feels. But in the midst of Paul's discouragement, I want you to see how God shows up. First of all, and I talked about this just briefly a second ago, and that is that God shows up in the version of companionship and friendship. Because the text tells us in one through three that Aquila and Priscilla showed up. These comrades in arms, these people who are on mission with, with Paul, these people that will make tents with Paul, these people that would help lift the burden from Paul, take the load from Paul. And then in verse 5, you have Timothy and Silas show up. I can't tell you, church, listen, I can't tell you how important it is to not walk alone. The American version of being a Christian almost is like consistent with isolation and independence. I'm telling you that's not the gospel. It's not what God saved us to. We belong to each other. 
Community is the context in which we live out our faith and remain strong. That's why the one another's always apply to encouragement and pushing each other into love and good deeds. That's what it does. And if you just know Jesus and are happy you're not going to hell, you're missing 99% of the gospel in your life. So, one other truth. Not only is it super important you not walk along, it's super important that you're proactive with that responsibility. If you're waiting around for somebody just to notice you and go, he looks isolated, let me go invite him. <laughs> That's not going to happen. It never happens on a Sunday. You know how we act towards each other on a Sunday? How are you? Oh, great. Things are great. No one's ever going to kind of move into your world and try to assume that you have some isolation, independence that needs to be loved out of. You have to pursue it. There are things like starting point, launch point that get you connected to one another, so get you in a context of community. You need the body. The body needs you. Do you understand? Paul was rescued from discouragement simply by a couple of people showing up and saying, we got you, man. When you're feeling down, we're not feeling down. When we're feeling down, you got us. That's how it works. One another's. I think God shows up for Paul when he meets a need, a very specific thing. Because when Silas and Timothy showed up, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, they brought an offering from Macedonia. The church gathered money together to send to Paul to do the work in Corinth. And Paul has been busy making tents, wanting to go to the synagogue. And don't you think when he got the offering, he goes, God, you know exactly what I need. And when I need it, I was a little grumpy that I had to go get a job. But I'm so happy now, God, that you've provided exactly I was in a conversation with Jeremy Olam this week, just randomly, we weren't, no intention, and we ended up in a discussion about what it's like to have bills, like medical bills and things that just kind of stack, and well, get to them when you get to them, because there's no magic money, right? And, and we reminded each other of the truth that God always supplies, he always supplies, and his supply is always enough, and it's always right on time. Is it true, church? And, and, and this truth is also something that we were reminded of. Only people with needs experience God's provision. You don't have needs? You don't have needs? You're on your own. You have needs? You get to experience God in his perfect way, in his perfect time. That's what we get with our Father. I think the other thing that God does for Paul here. And that is this, he shows him some fruit from all his labor. I mean, I know Paul's probably at the point where he can't see clearly. The lens is a little dark. Everything's going poorly. But watch what happens in verses 6 through 8. I love how this reads because it sounds like me a little bit. Um, He gets opposed and he gets reviled. And the first thing he says is, great, fine, whatever. Let your blood be on your heads. I'm never going to talk to another Jew the rest of my life. Paraphrase. (laughs) The very first person converted is the leader of the synagogue. Isn't that funny to anybody but me? Go ahead and emote, Paul, God says. I'm going to use you. Go ahead and have your moment, Paul. I know you're bothered. I know you're a little stressed, but it's coming. And so here comes this man, Crispus, the, the influence of influence. Talk about strategic. This leader and his family that everyone followed and many others in Corinth, I, I guess so. And I can just imagine Paul sitting down and go, man, that was stupid. I said never again, right? That was just me getting a little carried away. 
but God, I can tell something big's happening because no one thought he'd believe or they would believe. Just, just enough success, just enough fruit for Paul to go, what was I thinking? God did that for Paul. And this one, if that wasn't enough, this one is just amazing to me. Paul gets a personal memo from God in a dream. Here's how it goes. Don't be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Two commands in the statement from God to Paul and two promises. Let's look at them briefly. Don't be afraid. I picked this up two weeks ago. This is no kidding. It was one of those days I wanted to be in a field on a tractor somewhere. You know, I didn't want to do my job. And I, I looked at this, and I read those words. Do not be afraid. I go, really, God? Like, you knew so clearly that's what I needed? Like, is that precise? Like, you wanted me that day feeling that way to hear these words? And, of course, it was, just like it was for Paul when he heard it. Don't be afraid. Do you need to hear it today? There you go. Good morning. Are you under pressure? Have you failed? Have you blown it? And as the attack started, you know, the attack somehow wants to compromise how God feels about you or thinks about you or how he promises to use you. The attack is on. It's relentless. The words are haunting your mind and it just keeps on and it keeps on. Do you need to hear these words? Do not... Be afraid. 79 times the command to God's people is in, this, in the text. Do not, imperative, be afraid. It sounds like the worst counseling in the world, you know? Someone sits down in your office and you go, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> it doesn't seem to work, right? But everything changes when God says, don't be afraid. If I say to you, don't be afraid, you would go, well, who are you? What do you know about me or my story? What do, you, what do you know about the circumstances I'm under? And life is good for you. When God says, don't be afraid, changes everything. Because God is the only one who truly knows your story, and he has the power to do something about it. Amen? Amen. He controls all the circumstances. Nothing is a, a, a maverick molecule to God. He is not frustrated by what frustrates you. It's all a part of his plan. So don't be afraid. And listen to the promise of God to the prophet Jeremiah. I have plans for you declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not, not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll, I'll hear you, I promise, I'll hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Those are the promises of God for his people. Don't be afraid. I know you feel things, but remember who he is. So don't be afraid. He says a second thing, another command. Specifically, keep on speaking, do not be silent. You want paraphrase for us today? Keep doing what you're supposed to do. For Paul, he was supposed to speak, wasn't he? He was supposed to go into these places, into the synagogues, into these worlds, and tell people about Jesus. He was a mouthpiece for Christ. And so God said, Paul, just keep doing what I told you to do. You want to hear that today? Because what happens to us when we get discouraged is we just throw out the brakes. I don't want to try anymore. I don't want to care anymore. I'm worn out. The, in fact, the only way I want to do anything 
It's if I feel like it. You've heard this from this pulpit a thousand times, but, you know, Tom kind of, I think, invented the phrase, do what's right because it's right until it feels right. I mean, the reality of it is, is this. We have to stay obedient even when our heart doesn't want to. That's the phrase, commandment. Don't be afraid and keep busy at what you know you're to do. Now, let me give you the two promises that will really warm your heart. Promise number one, he says, because I'm with you and no one will harm you. Now, this is a very specific promise to Paul, but I think if we back up from it, we can see a bigger one for all of us because in Paul's world, every time he gets successful, they beat him up. He needed to hear from God, hey, man, I'm going to give you a break for a while. In fact, from the text, you can almost assume there's a year and a half where he isn't beaten up because nothing is said there. He's got ministry going on in Corinth, and he teaches for a year and a half, seeing success without suffering. So this is a very specific promise to Paul. Listen, Paul, I'm going to stop it for a while. So just so you know, I know what you need. You need a break. I'm going to give you the break. Now, God isn't promising. This isn't a promise that you'll never have to suffer or that nothing ever will touch you. That is, not, that is not biblical. But what is true in this promise, that is God is, if he's for us, then what? Now, this is the Apostle Paul that writes this in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who, who can be against us? Who? Oh, yeah. It's one of those oh, yeah moments. Apostle Paul also in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. There's a lot of things trying, but nothing will work. That's what he says in Romans 8. Colossians 3, he says, because I've hidden your life in me. I got you. That's the promise of the gospel. You are never as safe as you can ever possibly be than when you're in the hands of God. Safest place you could possibly be. One last promise, and that is this. The text actually says, I have many in this city who are my people. Let me paraphrase what that means. Don't quit, Paul, because you're going to see fruit. It's certain. You're going to see success. Paul wondered from time to time if anything he said really mattered. Did it make a difference? I mean, these people are apathetic, and they kind of reject me. They beat me. This is a not, a, not a good scene. Paul wanted, or God wanted Paul to know, I got this. I'm sovereign. There are people in this city who are mine who just don't know yet that I'm going to save them. You go get busy and tell them about me and they'll believe. That's how this is going to work. That's how it always works. God's sovereignty over election. He's going to get his people. They're wandering around, bumping their heads, participating in the wrong things. They're mine. And they just don't know it yet. You'll have success. Go tell them. You're going to be fruitful. Your, your labor is not in vain. Let's translate that for us just a little bit this morning. Let me encourage you, church, anything God's called you to is not in vain. Dad, if you're wearing yourself out telling your children the truth, if you're living the truth, even if they don't seem to respond to it, you are not living in vain. 
Ladies, if you're on your knees every day praying for that loved one, oh God, would you open his eyes? Would you open his eyes? Would you open his eyes? He's hurting himself. Would you open his eyes? You're not wasting your time. You're not in vain. You ask God, he responds in his due time with the right action. Amen? I got a note in, right after the last service from a young lady who her husband and her couldn't have children. And the last time we got together to pray, um, she said, I didn't have any faith at all. But guess what? We're going to have a baby. God knows. God's timing is perfect. If you go to work and you choose not to cheat the system, somebody's watching. You're not wasting your time. When you choose to live a set-apart life, a holy life, a different life on purpose, when someone else's life is spinning out of control, they'll come knock on your door and go, man, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just really hurting, but you, you seem like things are together in your mind. I just want to talk to somebody. They'll come to you. Your set-apart life is not in vain. Do you believe that? It's worth it. God is on the move. He is building his church. He is saving the lost church. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. I know you can. I know you can get discouraged, but hear what God is saying to us through the apostle. Let me remind you a couple things, okay? Okay. Don't be surprised when you experience discouragement because clearly the apostle was discouraged. David, a man after God's own heart, was discouraged. Elijah, heard of him? Discouraged. Noah, you want me to keep going? Moses, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the disciples, me, the elders, you. Discouragement. It's not abnormal. It happens. But just remember this, our God never takes his eyes off his kids. They're always within gotcha distance. You know, when my kids were little, I'm sort of protective, you know. I could always get to them. How much more so is God watching, guarding our soul? It's true. Just a reminder, too, the greatest need you have when you're discouraged isn't to have God somehow miraculously change your circumstances so that you aren't discouraged. Your greatest need is to remember the promises of God. That's your greatest need. Because you can't control those other things. And let me just tell you, if that's a great thing, then this is also a great thing. One of the greatest activities the church should be committed to is encouraging one another. Looking at each other and going, man, I just, when you do that, I'm so blessed. The fact that you're so faithful in your service, the fact that you pray, the fact that whatever. I mean, just notice, just noticing those things and appreciating them. Telling people thank you for the good job and not complaining would be great for the church. Let me read a story just to make my last point of what we should be doing with one another. An old legend tells how a man once stumbled upon a great red barn after wandering for days in a dark, overgrown forest. Seeking refuge from the howling winds of a storm that seemed to rage perpetually in the forest, he let his eyes grow accustomed to the dark, and then, to his astonishment, he discovered that this was the barn where Satan kept the storehouse of seeds to be sown in the hearts of men. More curious than fearful, he lit a match and began to explore the piles of bins of seeds around him. He couldn't help but notice that the containers labeled seeds of discouragement far outnumbered any other type of seed. Just as the man had drawn this conclusion, one of Satan's foremost demons arrived to pick up a fresh supply of seed. The man asked him, why 
the great abundance of discouragement seeds. The demon laughed <laughs> because they're so effective and they root so quickly. Then the man asked, do, do they grow everywhere? At this, the demon begins, became sullen. He glared at the man and admitted in disgust, no, they, they never seem to thrive in the heart of a grateful person. Convicting, right? Thankfulness. I've said this before, but thankfulness to me seems to be the only possible cure this side of heaven of not sinning. Because when you're thankful, you won't look for other things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this story, the realness of this story. For the life of Paul, a man saved by grace, just like every person in this room who trusts in Jesus. God, for those who are discouraged today, I pray that they can see what you might be doing and can believe that you're good. God, we want to leave here not just being encouraged, but encouraging one another all the more as we wait for our Savior. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.